Section 6 of Self and Self-Management Essays About Existing by Arnold Bennett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Meaning of Frocks 1. Being a man, I know that on the subject of women's fashions men still talk a vast amount of nonsense, partly sincere and partly insincere, especially when there are no women present. The fact is that the whole subject is deeply misunderstood, and the great majority of people, both men and women, live and dress and die without getting anywhere near the truth of it. Men try to explain the feminine cult of clothes by asserting that women as a sex are vain. It is also a profound truth that men as a sex are vain. Have you ever been with a man into a hosier's shop? If you are a woman, you certainly have not, because though a woman is often glad to be accompanied by a man when she is choosing her adornments, a man will not allow a woman to watch him at the same work. Fashionable dressmakers are delighted to welcome the accompanying man, but at the sight of a woman in his establishment, the fashionable hosier would begin to fear for the safety of the commonwealth. Even if you are a man, you probably have not been with another man into a hosier's shop. Men prefer to do these deeds quite alone. They shun even their own sex. The shopman does not count. Why this secrecy? The answer is clear. Men are ashamed of themselves on such occasions, because on such occasions their real vanity is exposed. Tailors, hosiers, and hatters are a loyal clan, but it must be admitted that they all have a strange look on their faces. That look is due to the revelations of male vanity which they carry locked eternally in their breasts. To these purveyors men give themselves away and are shameless before them. The ordinary man well knows that he is vain. Besides, you can see him surreptitiously glancing at himself in shop windows any day, and in some American periodicals there are positively more advertisements of men's finery than of women's. Again, men try to explain the feminine cult of clothes by asserting that women are like sheep and must follow one another. What one does, all must do. This argument is more than insincere, it is impudent. For women show much wider originality and variations of attire among themselves than men do among themselves. Half a dozen average well-dressed women will be as different one from another as half a dozen flowers of different species. You could distinguish between them half a mile off. But half a dozen well-dressed men would be indistinguishably alike if you decapitated them. It is notorious that men are the slaves of fashion. If a new shade of cravat or sock comes out, the city will be painted with that shade in less than a week. One year every handkerchief is worn in the sleeve, another year it will be shocking to wear a handkerchief in the sleeve, because the only proper place for wearing a handkerchief is in a pocket over the heart. At the slightest change in the fashionable diameter of the leg of a pair of trousers, every man with adequate cash or credit will rush privily to his tailor's, 
and in sixty hours a parcel will arrive at that man's home marked very urgent deliver at once men have a perfect passion for being exactly like other men not merely in clothes but in everything so much so that they cannot bear to think that there are men unlike themselves thus men will form clubs of which all the members are alike in some important point so that while they are in the club they will live under the beautiful illusion of universal resemblance they loathe opinions which are unfashionable or unfashionable in their particular set and environment they will not even read about such opinions if they can help it they are ready to imprison or kill and often actually have imprisoned or killed the holders of such opinions solely because they are not in the fashion and could a man with a bag wig walk down the strand or fifth avenue without having it knocked off or being arrested for obstruction he could not nevertheless a bag wig is less preposterous than a silk hat yet again men try to explain the feminine cult of clothes by asserting that women as a sex really enjoy the huge task of dressing and really enjoy spending money for the sake of spending money and have no brains above personal embellishment all these arguments are patently ridiculous to very many well-dressed women the task of dressing is naught but a tedious and heavy burden as for brains it frequently occurs that the women with the most intelligence intelligence far surpassing that of the average man are the most chic in regard to the enjoyment of mere spending the charge is true it is however equally true of men i could refer to tailors hosiers and hatters but i will not take for a change two dining parties at a restaurant one consisting of three men and three women the other consisting of six men the bill of the six men will be the heavier as a sex men in the french phrase refuse themselves nothing and their felicity in spending for the sake of spending is touchingly boyish whatever may be the explanation of the subjection of women to costly fashion we are now at any rate in a position to say what the explanation is not it is not that women are specially vain it is not that women are specially like sheep it is not that they lack intelligence it is not that they enjoy the tyranny and it is not that they are spendthrift if the explanation lay in any of these directions men would read fashion papers go to sales and change their suits four times a day two you will say women adorn themselves in order to be attractive to the other sex this is true but only to a limited extent and men also adorn themselves in order to be attractive to the other sex moreover a woman who has found the man of her desire and is utterly satisfied therewith will still go on adorning herself even though the man in question has made it quite clear that she would attract him just as strongly in a sack as in a poire gown further some fashions do not attract they excite ridicule rather than admiration yet they are persisted in 
and women of the classes who do not and cannot cultivate fashionableness succeed at least as well as the other woman in attracting men even when these men by reason of laborious lives have almost no leisure for dalliance the truth is that the competition among women for men is chiefly a legend not wholly there are more women than men but not many more women want marriage more than men want marriage but not much more competition is by no means so fierce that women have to perform prodigies of self-ornamentation in order to inveigle a fellow-creature so simple that he worries about the tint of his own necktie and socks and the idea of such a phenomenon is derogatory to women after all nature has the business of sex attraction in hand and she is not dependent on fashions long before fashions had been evolved she managed it precisely as well as she manages it to-day she relies not upon textile stuffs but upon the stuff that dreams are made on namely glances gestures actions and speech the authentic major explanation of the expensive fashionableness of women must be sought in another direction as usual men are at the bottom of the affair when woman gloriously dresses herself up to go out she does so in order to prove to the world something which man wants to be proved to the world in old days the two attributes which man held in the highest esteem were wealth and idleness to be poor was shameful and to work for a living was shameful man therefore had to demonstrate publicly that he was neither needy nor industrious one of the best methods of demonstration was costume and the costume of the successful man in those days was very expensive and so gorgeous and delicate as to make toil impossible for him the time came when man ceased to be proud of his own idleness and his costume altered accordingly then the duty of demonstrating wealth and idleness by means of costume fell on woman man could not do the demonstration on his own person he was too busy and hence he employed the lady to be expensive on his behalf such was her function and still is her function the rue de la paix is based firmly on the distant past assuredly long years will elapse before feminine costume ceases to be used as a demonstration that man possesses the attributes that are most admired estates demonstrate the possession of those attributes bonds demonstrate the possession of those attributes but estates are a fixture and bonds are kept in a safe costume walks about your wife can take it to the seaside with her the world cannot help noticing it and it has the further advantage of ministering to the senses the proofs of the substantial correctness of this explanation of women's dress are innumerable perhaps the principal proof is that the very man who grumbles at fashionableness in women would be the first to complain if his wife started to ignore fashion and to dress merely for comfort utility and charm no man objects to the inexpensiveness of his wife's clothes 
but every man objects to them looking inexpensive the advertised lure of a blouse marked one pound at a sale is that it has the air of a blouse costing two pounds suppose a rich man sees a delightful typewriting young woman walking down the street falls in love with her and marries her now although the clothes in which he saw her suited her admirably in every way and although she has simple tastes and more elaborate clothes do not suit her so well the first thing she has to do on marriage is to alter her style of dress for a more expensive style otherwise the man will say i don't want my wife to look like a clerk in other words i insist on my wife demonstrating to the universe that i possess wealth and can afford to keep her idle on my behalf even in small provincial towns where personal adornment is theoretically discouraged and where people preach the entirely false maxim that externals don't matter even there the theory holds good the middle-class wife will have her sealskin coat before she has her automobile fur coats are detestable garments to walk in but real sealskin is a symbol which cannot be denied and it is as important that that costume should prove idleness as that it should prove wealth hence the fragility of extremely fashionable costumes and their unpracticalness the fashionable costume must be of such a nature that the least touch of the workaday world will ruin it and it must go beyond this it must be of such a nature that the wearer is actually prevented by it from her full and proper activity an unconsidered movement would rip it to pieces rich chinese males till recently kept their fingernails so long that it was impossible for them to use their hands and they maimed females so that they could not walk both sexes were thus rendered helpless and the ability to be futile was proved like a problem of euclid we laugh at that crinolines were admirably designed to hinder honest work and we laugh at crinolines too but we still have the corset though the corset is not the homicidal contrivance it once was and we have the high-heeled shoe higher than ever you say but women have high heels to increase their apparent height not a bit all women whose business it is to demonstrate idleness to the universe wear high heels because high heels are a clear presumption that the wearer is not obliged really to exert herself if a woman with a rich husband is so inordinately tall that she is ashamed of her height she will wear high heels to prove that her husband is rich and not to be outdone the delightful typewriting girl walking down the street at eight thirty a m will also wear high heels and each hurried step she takes is a miracle of balance pluck and endurance life is marvellous three you will say life may be marvellous but these revelations about human motives are terrible and they depress us they ought not to depress you the saving quality about human motives is that they are so human and therefore so forgivable 
and be it remembered i have not asserted that the demonstration of wealth and leisure is the sole explanation of fashionableness i have already referred to the desire to be attractive and to this must be added the sense of beauty which is nearly allied to it the woman who bedecks herself is actuated by all three motives the motive of ostentation to satisfy primarily the man the motive to attract and the motive to satisfy the sense of beauty as regards the last it may be said that the sense of beauty does not regularly improve in mankind like for instance the sense of justice no feminine raiment has ever equalled the classic greek which was not costly but then the greeks were not worried by too much wealth and the greek dress would be highly inconvenient without the greek daily life and especially without the greek climate and i doubt if nowadays we should care greatly for the greek life still the sense of beauty does emphatically exist among us and the desire of women to be attractive is quite as powerful as it was in the time of aspasia these two motives are constantly and often victoriously fighting against the motive of ostentation and it is probably the interplay of the three motives that produces the continual confusing and expensive changes of fashion as has been well argued by professor franklin henry giddings one of the most brilliant social philosophers in the united states but all this must be altered the ardent among you will cry out in future women must dress solely to be attractive and to satisfy the sense of beauty well they just won't men will never allow it and women themselves would never agree to it costume will always be more than costume costume is so handy and effective as a symbol of something else and that something else will always be success when wealth ceases to be the standard of success then costume will cease to be employed as a proof of wealth and not before meanwhile we must admit that if the possession of wealth has to be proved to the world it could not be proved in a more charming and less offensive way than in the costumes of women the spectacle of a stylish dress stylishly worn is extremely agreeable the spectacle of a room full of stylish dresses stylishly worn is thrilling he among you who has never been to a ball should go to one and try the experience for himself leisure the ability to be idle and useless is still to a certain extent a standard of success in life but not anything like so much as in the past people are gradually perceiving that to be idle and useless is vicious hence the unpracticalness of women's costumes will gradually decrease beyond question high heels for example will vanish from our pavements and from our drawing-rooms i even have hope that women will one day wear dresses which they can put on and fasten unaided without the help of one two or three assistants but such changes will arrive slowly you cannot hurry nature it is a great truth that the present is firmly rooted in the past it refuses to be pulled up by the roots 
futile to announce that you will in future be guided by nothing but common sense whose common sense common sense is a purely relative thing the common sense of the past often seems silly to us and the common sense of the present will often seem silly to the future the progress of mankind is an extraordinarily complex business it cannot be settled in a phrase nothing in it is simple nothing in it is unrelated to the rest everything in it has a reason which will appeal to true intelligence and men should bear this in mind when they talk lightly and scornfully and foolishly about women's fashions to conclude let me utter one word about the secret fear that lies always at the back of most men's minds the fear that such and such a change in the habits of women will destroy their femininity this fear is groundless femininity thank heaven is entirely indestructible it will survive all progress and all revolutions of taste and when the end comes on this cooling planet the last vestige of it will be there fronting the last vestige of masculinity end of self and self-management essays about existing by arnold bennett recording by ruth golding april two thousand and twelve